0: A 34-year-old woman lays in bed, unable to fall asleep. I turned 35 this year, she thinks to herself. I still don't have a baby, and I'm not ready for kids right now. My career is not where I wanted to be yet. My husband and I don't even live in the same city right now because of our careers, and that's not going to change for at least another couple of years. But what about my fertility? I've heard that after 35, a woman's fertility just goes down the drain. What if it's much harder in a couple of years? What if I can't have a child? Do men have this problem? And what do I even do? Welcome to The Hurt by Dr. Mira Girpaker and Dr. Alobi Patel. We are the Female Pain Docs. This is a platform to contribute to the public discourse on women's pain and general health. We are here to empower women and men to engage in the advancement of their health with discussions of evidence based medicine, unconventional topics, lifestyle modifications, and more. The views contained in this podcast are our personal views and do not represent the views of our institutions. This does not substitute medical advice. Please be evaluated by a physician if necessary. So, welcome back to season two of the Hurt Podcast. So, on this episode, We're going to deviate from our anesthesia, pain, and lifestyle medicine topics, though we will cover a little bit of that too, and go more into the realm of women's health. So, we're going to talk about something that affects so, so many of our listeners. We're going to talk about a woman's fertility. So, I wanted to tackle this topic because it's something that I went through recently myself when I froze my embryos. And today, we're going to touch on how to navigate this complicated topic, address common questions women have about their fertility and hopefully even bust some myths. Now, I'm not a fertility expert by any means because I'm a pain physician and anesthesiologist, but I have been on the other side as a patient, which I'll also kind of briefly talk about. But to address those questions on fertility, I'm honored to introduce you to a very special guest and friend, Dr. Jennifer Blakemore, a board-certified OB-GYN and reproductive endocrinologist in New York City. So Dr. Blakemore received her undergraduate degree from Cornell, after which she went to the University of Pennsylvania for medical school. From there, she did her OB-GYN residency at NYU, where she was chief resident, followed by a fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at NYU. She's received a master's of science and research from NYU, has published extensively, and is a reviewer for multiple major medical journals. She's received numerous awards in leadership and research and has spoken at conferences across the country. So she's really qualified, to say the least, to answer any questions that we have today. So thank you so much for joining me and lending your time. So welcome, Jen. Thanks, Mira. I'm super excited. i um, so glad to have you here because this is also something that even though as both being physicians, you automatically assume that you kind of know a lot about medicine, but each field is so different and there's so many things that you know, even women physicians that are in different fields don't know about fertility. So I'm so glad we could finally talk about this, both for listeners who may be in medicine themselves, but mostly also for any listener out there who's in any other profession. Yeah, absolutely. What I'm going to ask you first is let's just start by talking about kind of what you do. So what's your like day to day, like who comes to see you? When should they come to see you? Yeah, really good question. I think
1: it's what I like to say is I think in general, people don't talk about reproduction or, you know, vaginas and other things, menstrual cycles, periods. It seems like a little bit more of a taboo thing um, until you're ready to talk about it for your own fertility, your own journey, which happens to be le- usually later in life for people. Um, but for me, it's my everyday and what gets me excited and helps helps me to get jazzed about helping people every day. My official title on paper is a reproductive endocrinologist, which is, I think, otherwise or more colloquially or better known as a fertility specialist. Um, I see all kinds of patients, anyone with any kind of reproductive issues, whether it be hormones, structure, function, uterus, vagina, ovaries, fallopian tube, um, people seeking to get pregnant or to build families, including those in the you know LGBTQ plus or queer community um, who have a history of conditions that might affect fertility. So if they have a history of cancer treatment in the past, PCOS, endometriosis, um, and now actually a bigger part of my field is um, gene conditions that might affect your fertility. So wanting to select against things like BRCA or other mutations to build your, a healthy family for yourself in the future. Um, or other people who are just interested in a bigger or broadening part of my field, which I call fertility preservation or freezing eggs or embryos against what I call age related decline. Um, and so I do lots of different things, but my day-to-day is, you know, seeing patients in the office, surgery procedures, like egg retrievals, embryo transfers,
0: um, and teach too. So a lot of different things and a lot of different roles. That's awesome. That See, even just that, that's very comprehensive. And that's awesome that you answered it that way, because, you know, you just kind of think of, um, fertility often is just IVF. I feel like that's just like the common term is IVF and that's pretty much it. And people don't really realize that there are so many components to it. And it's so individualized based on each person and all the histories that you just mentioned. So, you know, one of those kind of special things that we talk about is age, so like for you, you know, what like age range do you see? What's the ideal age range for someone to come see you? Yeah, it's a really good question. I kind of say in my practice, I kind of think in a very much a
1: knowledge is power sense. Everybody should kind of know about their body. You can't, you know, I think menstrual cycles and knowing about your fertility should be like a vital sign. You know, if you, if you, there was a change in your pulse or your blood pressure or your temperature, you'd be like, huh, something is off. I think I need to get this checked out. Um, And I don't think people think the same way about their menstrual cycle, which can be a very vital component of how well your reproductive system is working. Um, But in terms of age, I think it's interesting as obviously I, you know, I work in New York City. So I think in general, the age population in New York City is much higher. And so most women, I think, come to see me more like in their mid to late 30s. But I think in in coming into that knowledge is power sense. I think whenever you're ready to learn about yourself is kind of whenever you're ready, you can't ever go wrong by knowing about your body and also knowing that it changes over time. So sometimes it's a more longer discussion and coming into multiple visits. Um, But I think relating to that, as you mentioned, in general, peak fertility for most women is usually in their twenties because our our reproductive systems were designed millions of years ago when the (laughs) average trajectory was, you know, you've got your first period at 12 or 13, you were supposed to have your baby with your first period and then get eaten by a tiger at 25, <laughs> um, which doesn't happen anymore. And I think society would approve of that too. Right, um, right. But I think that whenever you feel ready and, and we're ready for route to check in on your reproductive goals. But I do think kind of early 30s makes sense for most people. It's a time when you're thinking about yourself, your career, your life planning, your family building. Um, and that goes for all people, but specifically those who've had any kind of history that would affect their, re- their reproductive function or their health should come sooner, just more of like a check-in to know what their trajectory or their pathways might look like. Right.
0: You know, and obviously, like, it's going to be very individualized, but whether or not someone has regular periods versus irregular periods, um, and whether, you know, a lot of women who may have had irregular periods may have gotten things checked out earlier than anyone who had regular periods, like a a lot of women, I know, just have your regular monthly cycles, you don't really ever get that checked up in any way. It's just part of normal life. It's not something you need to like, it's not a vital sign, like you said. Um, So for for, for those women, for the women who may have just like regular periods, they're really caught up in their life and career and all of that. What do you think of that age of Thirty-five, because that's like the scary age that you read about, where it's just everything just falls off a cliff and it's all over. <laughs> you yeah. to reproduce before then, or you have all these issues in terms of miscarriages or genetic defects, or you know things to like. Suddenly, it's just a very scary age for women. What do you think of that number?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It gets a lot of like media hype and all these things about thirty-five being like you're fertile, and then all of a sudden you're not fertile on your thirty-fifth birthday, um, which <laughs> is not really how it works. It's not like a literal proverbial cliff that you fall off of, um, but there is a gradual decline. You know, it's, it's interesting that that number came from a one research study in like the 1980s, roughly that showed that there was an increase in the risk of certain chromosomal anomalies in pregnancies that the risks went up after 35, which is still technically all true. And we do in our field call advanced maternal age after 35, not not because it's so much more risk, but because we like to tailor medical care to make sure we're taking good care of you and assessing things. Um, but I think that everyone's cliff happens at a different different point in their life. For some people, it's actually earlier than 35.
0: And for some people, it's much, much, much later. You just don't know who you are until you get a set. See, that's so interesting that you say that, that it was all based off of like one small study, because everything I feel like in terms of um, insurance coverages for things, uh, in terms of like how long you wait before you start to think about other options other than just trying to naturally conceive, all of that changes from 34 to 35. And it's all based off of this one study.
1: Yep. And it's it's frustrating, actually, because then, you know, sometimes even with insurance companies and coverage and all these other things that they mandate certain things based on odds. And part of my job actually is to make claims to people and insurance companies in coverage that everyone is actually very different. Um, and some, sometimes those apply for better or for worse, depending on what your goals are. Right. Um, so it can be both very exciting or frustrating (laughs) at the
0: same time. (laughs) And, you know, it's something that I'm glad we're talking about because, um, I feel like more than, ever before women are considering their fertility or considering uh, embryo freezing or egg freezing or IVF as as options, because it's just, I feel like it's expanded um, greatly in the past several years. And I have statistics on that, so I will read them. So I saw that in 2009, there were 475 women that froze their eggs, according to the Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology. But by 2018, 13,275 women did that. So an increase of 2,695%. I mean, that's enormous. And it's become pretty normalized. I feel like now in society, like you see celebrities talking about it or they're talking about a lot of their fertility journeys. It's become more normalized, not so much of a stigma as much anymore. And so, you know, you'll see uh, celebrities like uh, the Chrissy Teigen has posted on it, Courtney Kardashian, Emma Roberts, Amy Schumer. And so, you know, have you noticed Uh, that increase in women kind of freezing their eggs and embryos a lot over the years. Why do you think that's happened? Do you think it's becoming more normalized? Yeah, you know, I would say 100%.
1: I think it's one is I think people just feel more comfortable talking about it. And the more you talk about it, the more that people feel like they're ready to take charge or to learn about themselves, which I think is a totally good thing. I think it can only be helpful for people to be like, hey, maybe this is something I need to think about, or maybe I should think about it. And just to learn more and invest more in their bodies, Um, you know it's interesting. Like similarly on the statistics front, for example, like one in eight couples will struggle with infertility, and by comparison, that's more frequent and more often than one in eleven with diabetes or one in twenty with depression. So it's more common than some of like the most common things people deal with. We just don't talk about it ever. So I think the more people that open up the door to make it normal and to say like, yeah, I'm going to talk about my eggs or I'm going to talk about my partner's sperm or whatever it's going to be (laughs) helps people to regain control of something. And I think, you know, we all deal with hard things in our lives, but if you know that this is something that could affect you in the future, most people are good about making plans for themselves if they know, but if you don't know, then you just get on the back end surprised
0: sometimes. Right. No, and I, you know, that's that's such an interesting stat that you just threw out with the one in eight uh women that have issues in terms of fertility, considering how much of a stigma was associated with talking about it and not just stick, it's just shame. It's just so much shame associated with not being able to reproduce in some sort of quote unquote timely fashion or when you're quote unquote supposed to. Um, there's just so much shame associated for women with that, and women were the ones that were faulted or definitely not being able to produce a child. You know, it it was never really the male partner, even though that may have been the issue more than the woman's fertility. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I think it's, you know, historically before, and
1: I'm obviously very pro everyone doing everything they want with their lives and their careers, but historically it was meant that a woman's role was to reproduce and that was their job. And so if you couldn't or had trouble, it was a much more looked frowned upon thing. Um, and so, I think more so than anything, I think women can do it all. And I think the only way you can do it all is if you know and
0: you make your plan. Right. Right. And actually, it's interesting that you say that in terms of like the role of women, because that has obviously changed a lot in terms of women focusing more on their careers and wanting that time to be able to build their career before having a child or having that you know trajectory in terms of their career maybe interrupted um, by being pregnant and then having to take some time off and having potentially, you know, be replaced or looked over, um, in terms of their jobs. And, you know, what do you think about the fact that workplaces have been covering fertility costs a lot in order to prevent that? So I have another stat. So I read in 2014, well, not really a stat, but I read in 2014 that a lot of major companies is that's when they kind of started encouraging women to freeze their eggs and then paying for that cost. And they were like major companies, Facebook, Uber, Apple, AT&T, Microsoft. Um, and to me, I feel like there could be pros and cons with this. Like on the one hand, you know, it's it's a great option because it allows women the time to be able to build their career um, without worrying about their fertility declining if they take that time to build their career. But then on the other hand, it's sort of Maybe forces women to not reproduce and to instead freeze their eggs because having children early in their career, they might kind of be looked down upon, Um, and you know, like their workplace may not really approve of them wanting to have a child uh, at a certain time, and they want them to freeze their eggs instead. Well, what do you think? I mean, it's, it's hard. But what do you what do you think about that? I mean if you said it
1: really beautifully I think it's a really big catch 22. I think it's important and obviously I'm a very biased person but I very pro people you know I think everyone should be covered if if we could ideally do it that way and that everyone could make their own reproductive choices. I also think it's a delicate balance between um you know companies workplaces the whole world being more open like for example with medicine it's like upon if you take a break from training because you wanted to have a family or you don't. you should just plug and chug straight through kind of thing. But maybe that should all like maybe that's a culture change that it's okay to take a year off. and if you if you have a six year residency instead of a five- year residency, maybe that's still okay and you're a more productive, better person, better employee if you've completed who you are as a human being. So I think it's, it's a balance. And I think some people would benefit from both. And there's definitely people in all the different camps. Um, But I also think that people are very smart and know their own goals and know what's going to help them and like what would be most beneficial for them. So I think more so than anything, it highlights the, like the autonomy that like life work and lifestyle changes and all that will change a lot. But the problem is, is that reproductive timelines don't. And so the only way to kind of, change
0: that is to give options. You know, and and going back to you mentioned um physicians, like you mentioned uh women in medicine, and obviously that affects both of us. But you know, for women in women in medicine, you know, it's um I read that one in four women physicians experience fertility issues compared to one in eight in the general population. And that absolutely makes sense to me because given how long our training is and just getting through undergrad and then medical school and then residency and then potentially fellowship and even more (laughs) fellowship and all your exams. So by the time you end up kind of completing all of that, you're, you're certainly well into your thirties by the time you're kind of done with everything. And then in that time frame, you have to also have potentially have found a partner and your partners might also be working on their career. And it's very difficult to kind of plan for fertility when you're dealing with all of these other things and you're working, you know, 80 hours a week. And I read that 53.3% of women physicians would, said that they would have attempted to conceive earlier and 16.7% would have chosen to freeze their eggs if they had thought that this might have become an issue for them, or they had really like thought ahead for that. And for me too, I mean, my partner is, you know, my husband is still training. Uh, He's on a very, very long journey of training because he's doing cardiothoracic surgery, which takes forever to finish. And we live in different cities because that's where training can take you. You know, I was training in New York, he's training in Chicago. And so it, uh, and there's no predictability with that. That's not certainly not something that you can ever uh, where you match, where you end up is where you end up. And so there's no way to like figure that out, especially when there's two, um, people in medicine. And for me, that's why I ended up freezing embryos is to have to preserve that fertility and have that option. But, um, I started to do that only because a lot of my friends are in similar situations where they're also just finished training, just kind of started quote unquote, started their lives in some way. And it's not the greatest time for extenuating circumstances to have a child right now. And that's why they, um, decide to freeze their eggs or embryos. And it is definitely something that I've thought about as like, Oh, maybe I should have also done it earlier. Like instead of waiting till I was 35 to do it, maybe I should have done it, uh, in my twenties. What, what kind of response could I have had if I had done it in my twenties? Sure. But anyway, um, It's very personal topic for me too. So it's uh it's so interesting to talk about it because even though we're in medicine, we definitely don't talk about this ever. No. And you know, I don't think even for cost wise, it's very prohibitive if you're in training to be able to even afford to do this in a timely fashion. And that I that I think is probably a, a an issue for everyone. Yeah. Cost is prohibitive. Yep you know, it's, it's a very, you know, what I,
1: again, what I call fertility preservation or freezing eggs or embryos or both, or whatever, whoever you are and what your reproductive goals are, um, is very cutting edge technology, which is great. Like we want to learn on science. We want to do all of that. It just then obviously relates to the cost that is required to do all of that, uh, which hopefully will continue to evolve in the future as we progress with all things. Um, but I think it's, you're right. I think in general, as women climb the, the chain of medical training, careers, all of that. It's showing that like how much people have to balance and juggle in terms of their goals, whether that, you know, family, family building, friends, training, career, all of And I think more so than anything, what the pandemic has taught us too and how life throws a wrench in all of your plans, no matter what you have planned for. Um, And I think the pendulum is swimming a lot, swinging a lot um, that whether, you know, whether it's medicine and it's like straight through in training or whether your path is straight curvy uh, combined or wherever it stops and starts, that I think it's important to like highlight the alternatives for things. And that even if someone has paved what, what thinks is a straightforward path for you, that maybe it's slightly different and that's okay too. Mm-hmm.
0: Speaking of the pandemic, <laughs> or maybe, maybe we shouldn't speak of the pandemic. I know. Right. <laughs> but speaking of the pandemic, um, I did read a time article recently, actually, that surveyed um, clinics, fertility clinics across kind of major American cities. And they found that the number of women freezing their eggs had increased during the pandemic, uh, up to a 50% increase since 2019, which is really interesting, because so many other things sort of shut down. But this seemed to have ramped up. Is that something you noticed for yourself also? And why do you think that's happening? Yeah, you know, it's, it's fascinating. So we, you know, we, as with most medical centers,
1: we closed for a short period of time, right when the pandemic hit, especially being in New York city, which was the beginning at the center of everything. Absolutely. Um, And then we very swiftly realized that this was not going to go away quickly. (laughs) Um, And so we reopened actually in May, even with the height of everything, just realizing that we felt actually that reproductive care was essential and that like Mm -hmm. that your reproductive clock doesn't stop just because, you know, elective surgery did or other things. Right. And so we reopened very quickly. Um, but it's interesting. We are definitely saw an increase at least 30, maybe 40, 50% of our own center in the past wow. year or so. Um, which I think is for a couple different reasons. One actually interestingly, I think personally is a little bit about like time and flexibility that with the shift hmm. with work from home and other things, people realize they could do both. I think right. in addition to the, the prohibitive cost, that sometimes the time and flexibility to do work, come for visits to the clinic, do all the things, have a procedure was harder for people. And when you had the flexibility to do both, then you were working from home. Or do, we learned that most jobs can actually be done at least partially remotely, probably, um, that it gives people more flexibility. Um, but I think on the flip side, a second part I think is a really big of a reset on priorities. I think the pandemic showed us all that um, things can change in an instant. And when what you think you have a year to finish or a year to accomplish, maybe you don't kind of thing. And if if family building or reproduction is a high priority
0: for you, then maybe now is the time and that you don't have to wait for however long. That's fair. That's fair. No, that's a, that's a really good point. Uh, I definitely think that the time having the more, more time, more flexibility, because I mean, and, and I'll, you know, describe what it felt like being on that side, but amongst other things, including hormonal changes that you're going through uh, it definitely requires a big time commitment to be able to make appointments and to definitely to commit to doing that. Um, you can't skip a day. You can't right not do things in the timely fashion that you need to do them in right. because you got stuck in a meeting or you got uh, you know you you were traveling somewhere. Like you can't really do that. You have to be able to not be traveling. You have to be able to be where you are. Show up to appointments like every other day. And so I think you're right about the, the flexibility definitely being more with the pandemic. Um, and I, I agree with the priorities too. Yeah. You know, I think it'll, it's interesting because
1: it'll continue to evolve and, and all those different things. But I also think it's with the the changing priorities, time commitments, coverage. And I think also with the, like you mentioned with people, more people, whether it's your friends, your family, or your celebrities talking about things that it just gives more people to think about themselves and what their goals are. Um, and, you know, I think, Sometimes for better or worse, you get so involved with your career or family or friend, whatever's happening in your life that you just say like, okay, it's a priority of mine, but I'll put it in this other hat until when I can get to it and give it thought. But if you have the time, then all of a sudden it regains, you know, prominence in your
0: priority list. You touched on something too, when you said with the celebrities, because I do think that with the pandemic, you know, where we were lacking or continue to lack a lot of times, um, social sort of in-person attention in some way. And like that uh, camaraderie with actually seeing people in person and doing things in person. And so automatically everyone sort of turned much more towards things like social media to get their information from, to connect with others, to have, you know, feel or feel more connected with the world while looking at uh, Instagram and Twitter and TikTok videos. And And a lot of the women on there were talking about things like fertility along, I mean, of course, you know, constant coverage of the pandemic, but, um, also the other sort of aspects of life and slowing down and doing things that are important to you. And those became kind of the messages that came through and that was what you're engaging more in. So automatically, I think it does make you think about your own life a little more and and engage more with what you want. Totally.
1: Absolutely. And which I think is good for all of us, right. To check in on your priorities and. Even for myself, like it was a big time to be like, wow, there is so much on my list that I like literally couldn't compartmentalize that maybe now I can't. Not that I did everything
0: on my list, but
1: you know how that goes.
0: Right, right. Exactly. But you're like, oh, maybe I should think about these things and not be like, you know, maybe 10 years from now, I'll think about it. But maybe I should do it now. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I hear you on that because that's how this podcast was born in the first place was the pandemic and realizing what was important to Albie and I too. Exactly. And (laughs) so (laughs) fruitful. So I'm going to deviate a little bit and talk about the different fertility options. So kind of going more towards like the science of it. So, you know, for our listeners, um, like we said earlier, when people think of fertility, they think of like IVF or egg freezing, but there are more options than just IVF and egg freezing. I mean, I personally froze embryos. So what is like the difference between those three things who should consider kind of what options? Yeah, no, I think it's, it's a really
1: good question. I think, so in general, the, especially for age-related decline or more for like future planning within fertility care or reproductive care, um, I use this a big umbrella term of fertility preservation, but for all people, it's kind of three different things. Um, one is what we call gamete freezing, which for if you are a person with ovaries would be egg freezing, if you're a person with testicles that would be sperm freezing um, but we'll focus more on the, the female side just because it has more options overall um but i think fertility preservation comes into either egg freezing or embryo freezing um, the process of which is actually very similar for both from the female side of things it involves, you know, about two weeks of hormone injections to stimulate your ovaries to produce more than one egg a month, just to kind of hijack those hormones to produce. Um, and I think the answer is that both of those options, eggs or embryos, or both, um, have pros and cons, and it really depends on what your reproductive goals are. Um, so for example, pros to freezing eggs are really much more from like a reproductive autonomy perspective. They are your eggs, you can use them however, never, whenever, with whomever, however you want in the future. Um, because there's a little bit less on the technology side, it tends to be a little bit cheaper because we do you know less to the eggs in terms of just freezing them overall. Um, the cons to eggs are really that they're much more variable than embryos. So they're a little bit more fragile as a tissue because an egg is a, a single cell with a very large amount of water content. Whereas an embryo, like an organ, is hundreds and hundreds of cells that are much smaller with a much smaller water content, so they're less susceptible to problems with freezing and then warming up overall. Um, and so they have a, eggs have a slightly higher loss rate in a, in the lab, even a good lab, than embryos do. And so there's much more. Um, it's also egg freezing is newer. You know, it, egg freezing got like cool and popular around 2013 or 2014, which is when the experimental label was lifted. Um, and so. A good center, like for example, one that I work on has been doing egg freezing since 2004, um, but during the experimental phase. So it's just still a, a much more newer part of things. So if you decide for egg freezing, picking a lab that has the longevity of experience with freezing and thawing and using your eggs, if you need them in the future is super, super important. So the flip side is all the kinds of eggs are what translate into the pros for embryos that they're less fragile. They are much more vetted statistics on what kind of reproductive tissue you have and how many children you could have from those embryos with less variability. Because each cycle is different. There's drops in all the different ways throughout the process. And so you just have much more vetted statistics to know what your reproductive outcomes could be in the future instead of ballparking, well, I think this is the number of eggs you have could give you this many embryos or babies in the future. Got it. Because you already have the embryos, right? Exactly. The cons are much more that with embryos is that it involves somebody's sperm. Um, And so you can't remove an egg and a sperm once you put them together. Um, And mostly that there's just legal implications, right? So if you and your partner split that you both have legal rights over these embryos, if you wanted to use them. Right. Um, And honestly, I have a lot of couples that do both, you know, even if they're married, the eggs and embryos to have viable options for both one or the other. Um, So I think it really depends on who you are and what your plans are. Um, I think it also comes into a little bit of personhood in terms of like the religious and cultural aspect that some people find it if they didn't need to use the reproductive tissue in the future, that discarding or donating eggs would be somewhat easier than embryos since they're not like a full embryo part of thing yet. Right. Interesting. Um, But it's very personal. So I kind of say like the decision to do this or not do it or when or how is
0: extremely personal overall. And then between the two, what are the success rates? I guess I mean I know it's going to vary by age. It's going to vary by a lot of things. But on on average, for let's say that that thirty five year old woman that we picked, Mm -hmm. aka me, if we pick that thirty five year old woman, um, what would be sort of like the average statistics for success with? Eggs versus embryos. It's a really good question. And the answer is
1: it's it's really nuanced based on your physiology and kind of how what quantity of tissue you have. But we generally all quote that, if, for example, with embryo freezing, if you have a a really beautiful embryo that's been through genetic testing that has all the things, that your success rate per embryo transfer with that embryo is about a sixty to sixty five percent chance in that month that you put the embryo in. Um, and I think some people look at that and they're like, wow, sixty percent seems pretty low. But actually, if you compare it to like a, for example, a healthy boy and a healthy girl, both like 19 or 20, perfect fertility, who are trying to conceive at home, in bed, at the time of ovulation, like everything perfect, um, their chance of having a baby that month is only 24% actually. Wow. So by comparison, it's much, much higher overall. Um, but I, And so like, it's hard to flip flop those statistics because obviously some people don't have success still, but I think very, very good overall um with eggs it just translates into how many as you get from the eggs to the embryo stage that you if you get to the embryo stage it's the same statistics it's just that the getting from the eggs you just don't know how many you need so we all kind of ballpark that um depending on what your reproductive goals are for example one baby two babies, some people plan for a football team of children, Um, everyone's (laughs) reproductive goals are different, that that kind of determines your success rate. But we think it's actually age dependent that we quote the same statistics, eggs or embryos, it just takes more steps to get there. Okay, overall.
0: That makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, there's, there's definitely a drop, it sounds like there's a drop off rate, yep, or no matter what route you choose, it's going to be a drop off rate, uh, regardless. So even, so even though those numbers, you know, uh, if someone says, oh, I've froze, you know, 12 eggs versus they say they froze three two or three embryos. It sounds like, oh, why so little compared to the number of eggs? But it sounds like statistically those eggs might only end up giving you two embryos anyway. Right. Um, so it's kind of the same. Exactly. And so that it's just
1: about odds, really, more so than anything. There's um, someone who trained me when I was in my fertility training called it the war of attrition. Which just means how ridiculously inefficient reproduction actually is. <laughs> so, like, I'll I'll bob, I'll ballpark you some statistics that like someone in their twenties, let's just say they for whatever reason they're doing IVF in their twenties, they would, on average, get maybe like twenty five eggs out. Um, of those twenty five, only about eighty percent would be mature. Of that, only eighty percent would even combine with the sperm. Um, of the ones that combine to make us with the sperm to make what's called an early embryo called a zygote only about 50 to 60% of zygotes grow into an embryo. And then the number of embryos that will be healthy really depends on your age group in terms of how many will be healthy overall. Um, But it's hard. So like an average 20 year old with 25 eggs, maybe gets four embryos, four or five, which would be statistically average
0: overall. Wow. Okay. And then what about, so what's the average in terms of embryos for 32 to 40? I'm sure it's going to be lower as you get higher in age, of course, but is it like a significant difference between let's say like 32 to age 40? Uh, I'm just, I just made up the number 32. Just wanted to give a slightly lower range than just 35 to 40. So like, let's say 32 to 40. What are your thoughts?
1: It's interesting actually. And this is, it's hard to process with the numbers, but in general, early thirties tends to do very well and kind of comparatively. So there's not so much of a reproductive change or drop between like 31 versus 32 or 32 versus 33 kind of thing. Um but statistically the same. So an average let's say 32 year old would maybe get like 18 eggs instead of the 25 that a uh, you know someone in their 20s might get and then that just further drops. So someone in their 40s would maybe get like 10 overall. Um and so it just further declines as you get closer and closer and your ovarian reserve drops because that's actually like physiologically what menopause is is the loss of all the good eggs so that number dwindles over time and the concurrent part the harder part is that not only does your quantity decrease but the quality or its ability to work correctly also decreases and so that's where the hardships that was my next
0: question <laughs> with the statistics coming <laughs> right exactly <laughs> so so basically i mean it's both the quality and the quantity which is why it sounds like the earlier that you do this process at least in terms of freezing eggs the better chance you have Because the quality of the egg would also be better. So you'd have a little bit less of that drop-off rate. Right, exactly. And so in general, fertility is both
1: about quantity and quality, just like you said. The problem mostly with what I do is that right now we only have testing in the fertility world for quantity and structure of reproduction, and that there is no quality test for either eggs or sperm, except to put them together and see what happens. And so you can't know that unless you do that. And so that's the kind of difference between also additionally between eggs and embryos is that you get like another layer of advanced knowledge with embryos, which you get with eggs just in the future.
0: I see. So the only way to really know the quality of the embryo or the only way to know the quality of your reproduction is to create that embryo. That's like the only way to know. Okay. Exactly. You know, it's really interesting. For example, I've had people freeze five
1: eggs and still get two babies. And I've Mm -hmm. had people freeze 60, I'm making up a ridiculous number, but a very high number like 60, and don't get any because there's a quality piece that's untestable. And so clearly everybody would love both, quality and quantity. That would be a perfect world. But I think there's a situation where some people could get their reproductive check and have a low quantity, like a low count, but their quality is amazing. And they're still gonna have a beautiful fertility with no impact on their reproductive planning whatsoever
0: it's just their ability to do egg freezing or embryo freezing counts would be lower. Okay. Overall. What about, uh, the markers that sometimes, you know, if you go to an OB-GYN and you're like, how does my fertility look? And they'll draw some lab work. They'll draw some blood work on you. Um, and like throw out some statistics to you. How much does that factor into what will actually end up being the case? Uh, when you go through, let's say, you know, freezing eggs or freezing embryos.
1: Yeah. It's a really good question. And I think it comes back to those hormone levels in check all relate to the quantity piece. And so we use them. They're not a ballpark of fertility at all. So for example, if I had a 32 year old who came in with a bad number, quote unquote, very low, looks like a, as low as someone who's in their late forties, for example.
0: And I'm assuming you're talking about AMH levels. Yes, exactly. So there's
1: kind of two different main hormones that I look at when I evaluate someone's reproductive function in terms of egg or embryo freezing. Um, AMH stands for anti-malarian hormone. It's it's an interesting hormone um, that is mostly important as we are being born in our embryology while we're inside of our mothers. But it's a nice ballpark for egg reserve because it's a hormone produced by like the kind of dormant eggs hiding in your ovaries that are waiting to come out. Um, and then a second hormone called FSH, which stands for follicle stimulating hormone which I like to say is kind of like a, a marker of energy, like how much energy is your body requiring to run a menstrual cycle each month. And when we're younger, it's kind of in a very bad analogy, but kind of like the amount of gas you need to run a car. So like if you and I were going to go on a road trip and we, you know, get in a car flat road, we hit the gas pedal, we're cruising down the highway, cruise control, no big deal. That's kind of what younger age is like overall. And if all of a sudden we were to be at the base of a mountain and want to maintain 60 miles an hour up a mountain, the car runs great. You just need more gas on a mountain road than you do on a flat road. And so the FSH is a ballpark for me of how hard is your body working, flat road or mountain road for all. And I use both of those parameters to know kind of how much medicine you might need or what is the best protocol to get your body to recruit more eggs in a cycle. Um, So we use them mostly as a, as a sign of how well your body's working right now and how to help it work in a cycle, but they're not perfect markers of fertility. So I have people who come in with quote unquote bad markers, meaning a low AMH or a high FSH or both who still do very well and get em- good eggs or good embryos. It's just a tailored conversation about what that means for your goals in terms of what, what it means for you for reproductive success.
0: Gotcha. So those, those numbers. If just for like our listeners. So if you're looking at a number, like let's say AMH, because I think that's kind of the number or that's the hormone that's talked about more in terms of fertility. And when you see articles in, you know, magazines and newspapers, that's usually like the one that's targeted, like what is your AMH level and how that's going to predict your fertility. That sounds like that's more kind of predictor, maybe how you'd respond to IVF, but not really how you would just be able to naturally conceive. Right. It's, it's, you know, it's the one that's gained the most
1: popularity because it's not cycle based. So a lot of what we do in, in fertility testing, especially from the woman's side is all, did you get your period? Where are you in your menstrual cycle? It's all very specific based. So it's harder to track. Whereas AMH can be drawn at any time. It's not a cycle dependent hormone. So it gained more traction for that reason. Um, But it has in every statistical study we have in our field has never been panned out to be predictive of fertility. It just predicts response to treatment overall. So as like an anecdote, I once had a 32-year-old come in to me who just wanted to ch- quote-unquote check levels because it would be fun. And right. she wanted to see where her levels were. <laughs> um, and she came back with a low number. So we use a threshold in our field of above or below one as kind of good or poor response or a or low. Um, and her number at 32 came back very low at 0.2. I would say I would say an average number for a 32-year-old is probably somewhere like in the twos or threes. Um, and obviously you can't hear that kind of number and not get freaked out and not be worried. Of course. Um, she happened to be partnered at the time and just, you know, was ready to take charge of her fertility now. Um, and so went home. She and her partner decided they were ready to try and they got pregnant on their first month, first try with twins. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. You just never know. And as again, as a as a uh Trying to be a leader and an advocate in reproductive women's health, no matter what your numbers are, if you're not ready for pregnancy, you take birth at the same right. precautions you would otherwise. Right. Um, but I think it's just important—important important caveat that numbers are numbers, um, but they just help us try to g- help you meet your goals.
0: Going back to those numbers again, because this is so popular right now. Um, I mean, personally, yeah, for me too. As simple as when I also kind of had it sort of routinely, kind of checked out of curiosity. Um, and I had it checked and I was, you know, my, my number wasn't as low as that, but it wasn't, it was like borderline. And I was very, of course, automatically freaked out by that too. Totally. Um, and then I, all I did was I just went off of birth control for a while, uh, you know, not necessarily trying to um, conceive, but more just going off of birth control to see how that would affect the number in any way. And it like more than doubled um, within a couple months of stopping birth control what factors sort of play into that number? Like is birth control one of those, one of those things that artificially lowers it? You know, it's really interesting. And so it's a big area of research in our
1: field now because like anecdotally and interestingly, birth control has only been around really for about 20, 30 years. And then like really in much more active use in the past, probably like 20, which means people in their mid thirties now are the first group of women to have ever been on long-term birth control because it was introduced when we were teenagers. Um, And so, you know, most, I think people in our field used to say like, it's no problem. You just come off your birth control when you're ready. It won't impact you whatsoever. And I think what we're learning now is that there's actually two groups of women, Um, women or people with ovaries who can be on birth control long-term, like decades and it doesn't impact your fertility at all. Your numbers are exactly the same. Um, And you can literally come off your birth control and the next day get a period and be the most fertile person you have ever been. But there's a second group of people where it's birth control, no matter what it is, an IUD, a birth control pill, a patch, an implant, whatever it might be, is actually very suppressive because the goal of birth control is to trick your brain into not ovulating so that you don't release an egg and don't get pregnant. But those hormone signals, like if I told you over and over like, You're a don't open your door. Don't open your door. Don't open your door. You would just be like, okay, I'm just never opening the door again. Like I get, I get the point. I'm not supposed to do it. And so you kind of forget how, in which case we think those numbers go down. And so interestingly now, it's not that it's permanent. It doesn't affect your fertility. Like you're never going to be fertile again, but it can take some women as long as three, six, or even 12 months to get regained back to who they would be off of birth control. Um, I think as another anecdote, I had a, um, a 29 year old who had been on eight years of birth control pills who came in, whose AMH similarly was like point something. Um, and nine months after stopping her birth control, her AMH was four. And so it just, it can be, it can be very scary to not see those numbers. And so again, it doesn't mean you're not fertile. So if you come off your birth control to see your numbers, be prepared to take other (laughs) proactive stances, but it can be, I think we're still kind of learning what that means if there's better or worse types of birth control for people who want to evaluate those things and kind of who within the spectrum of all human beings and how they respond to medicine and different dosings and things, how we find out who is who and how to best take care of them. That's fascinating.
0: That's because uh, we don't really hear, you just kind of hear scary things, mostly when you read these articles, um, you don't really see it in this context of it's so individualized and it's also so time dependent and not just like a, one time you're on birth control, one time you're off birth control, and then boom, everything magically just kind of goes back to the way it was, and you can get pregnant the next day, or get, or it might take months for you to be able to conceive. And that's, you know, we don't think about it in that context. And even for me, like when I went um, off of birth control again, like you know, a month or two later, my AMH had more than doubled. I'm curious what it is now because uh, at that time my periods hadn't recovered in the sense that I was still sort of having those birth control like periods where they're not really that painful, um, shorter, you know, and this is not for, obviously every woman is different and not every woman is going to experience periods that way with birth control, but that's how I had been experiencing them for like 10 years. And then when I came off of it, it took a good, um, I would say six, six to eight months before my uh, periods went back to sort of pre birth control. And then all yeah. of a sudden I remember thinking, I was like, it's so much longer. It's yeah. so why <laughs> fun. so much more this month. <laughs> and, yeah, And it was definitely. like, Oh, maybe. And, and, you know, and it just like all, it was like one month where all of a sudden I was like, this is so much worse than it ever used to be. And then I was like, no, this is how it used to be before I went on birth control, which is why I went on in the first place was because of painful periods. So that's good to know um, that it can
1: take months. Exactly. And it's just about your goals. Like they you know, Painful periods or dysmenorrhea, as we call it in the middle of the field, is, is terrible. Like, I don't wish that upon anybody. And, and birth control is a wonderful option for a lot of people. It's just a balance about who you are at what point in your life and what your goals are. And knowing now that that evolves a lot for people in so many different ways.
0: I'm sure it also likely differs based on the type of birth control you might be using um, in terms of an IUD versus pills. I'm sure there's a lot of variability with that too. Has has that been studied as well?
1: It's actually just now being studied. It's interesting. We actually oh. had our first medical conference in 19 months, thanks to the pandemic <laughs> um, um, last week. And there were actually a couple of different presentations in terms of looking at different birth control options, how much the mean or median, the average of shifting of AMH levels over time, and kind of like a epidemiologic or population-based kind of study. Um, And we're kind of finding the same thing. There'll probably be some nuances. So even for example, in like a much more like advanced or forefront kind of question is a lot of people who are talking about freezing eggs with me ask, can I keep my IUD in? Do I have to take it out? Does it, you know, does it matter? Um, And kind of similar, I find that some people can keep it in and it impacts nothing and they can stimulate totally fine with an IUD, even like a hormonal IUD, like a Mirena or a Liletta. Um, and some people can't, in which case I do recommend that it comes out because your reproductive outcomes to get, you'll get less eggs essentially for some people with an IUD in. So it just depends. And I think it's, it's why like, you, you know, same way you can't compare yourself to a girlfriend for lots of different reasons for things. This is one of them. Um, but it makes
0: it very unique. And that sense. What about, um, other factors? So on this podcast, we do talk a lot about, I mean, obviously we talk about pain and anesthesia more, uh, but we do talk about a lot of sort of lifestyle factors. So beyond birth control, does do things like your diet, sleep, exercise, stress levels, do those things affect your fertility, both in terms of natural sort of conception versus um, also in terms of if you're, if you choose to undergo embryo freezing or egg freezing? Does it matter what you do your whole life, a month leading up to going through the process? Like, does it matter how you're lifestyle goes, alcohol, smoking, all of those things Those factor in.
1: Yeah. It's a really good question. And the answer is both yes and no. And so um, the answer is like, as a holistic, I would be a very bad doctor if I told you those things didn't, didn't matter at all. (laughs) And so I would say absolutely like anything, a good doctor would tell you is good for your body is going to also be good for your reproductive organs. So, you know, not smoking good lifestyle exercise, sleeping well, all of that. Um, it's interesting, probably the worst culprit of all of them is smoking. It's, it's, and every study is really negative for both eggs and sperm reproductive outcomes, um, and actually every kind of smoking. So cigarettes, vaping, other like illicit inhalants and other things are all pretty bad. Um, and same thing, there are smaller associations, obviously for alcohol in excess, poor diet, obesity, all of that type of thing. The caveat I'll make to all of that is I think our bodies are actually pretty good at knowing what are the important organs in our bodies and how to protect them. Um, and so the physiology is such as that for people with ovaries, we've all had all the eggs since before we were born. They're just waiting for us to use them and we lose them over time. So they get to see all the good or bad choices we've made over the course of <laughs> our lives and college and other things. Right, um, And they don't really affect people's outcomes in the same way. So I think that links me to your question about stress. I think it's an interesting one. So for example, even with the pandemic. We think that your body just knows how to protect those important organs. So, even last year, and with um, egg freezing outcomes, IVF outcomes, pregnancy outcomes, that unless you obviously contracted COVID, um, that the stress part of things didn't really impact our reproductive outcomes, which is the same trends we've seen in even like really stressful times like famine and World War II, that reproductive outcomes don't necessarily fully drop, um, and that your body knows how to partition a little bit. That being said, stress is not good for you like holistically as a human. So feeling stress is not good, but I would say, you know, I always tell people like no one finds the process of egg freezing or ember freezing easy or not stressful, like poking yourself with shots and other things, but there's nothing that you could, if you have like a big deadline and had to work on a paper or whatever it might be, that's not going to make you get less eggs or less have function by living your life. So I think like all good things for your body, no smoking, low alcohol and living your life, but you feeling like a good you, I think is the best, most holistic thing you can do.
0: I love that. Yeah. That's very well put because, you know, we do see that uh, amongst like athletes or people that vigorously exercise or, um, uh, anyone who suffers from maybe anorexia, bulimia, where those things do affect your fertility, but it sounds like your body does have protective mechanisms and it's really extreme conditions that might affect your fertility, but for like a normal uh, day-to-day life, like your normal sort of living, even if you're going through residency, let's say, or a stressful job, your body should be able to protect you and preserve your fertility.
1: Right. It's same thing. Like it's, it's one of those things where obviously there's super, super stressful things. Obviously like, chemotherapy or cancer for one of them. Um, But I think the extremes, and this comes back to that, like knowing your menstrual cycle, when your body is really stressed out or struggling, your periods probably stop or other things are changing where you have an inkling that something is not right. But if you are getting a regular period or you feel holistically like hormonally balanced, that there's probably not much that can shift that in a way negative or way positive kind of sense.
0: Fair enough. What about the vaccine? Does this affect fertility in any way? Or because there's there's a lot of misconceptions on that out there totally. <laughs> in terms of the vaccine affecting fertility, affecting the whole embryo editing process, uh, pregnancy. There's a, a lot of uh, misconceptions in terms of that out there. Yep. Can you help clear some of them up? Yeah.
1: You know, it's interesting. I don't know why fertility and the COVID vaccine suddenly became this like boom of social media and things that they were connected. Right. But all of the data supports that all women trying to conceive, currently pregnant, postpartum, thinking about pregnancy in the future, <laughs> um, or even like teens, like about to get your first period and all of that, that there is no effect on fertility, um, except the only so bad association actually is active COVID infection, in which case, if you get your vaccine and are protected against, you know, an illness that can cause harm to your body, that that's probably the best thing you can do for your, for your body. Um, and actually, especially more so now that it seems that the Delta variant and some of these new, some of the new, like COVID strains that are coming out are seem to affect pregnant women who are unvaccinated worse than they has prior. Um, so I think more so than anything, I think all good OBGYNs, fertility specialists and good doctors overall all recommend the vaccine. And I would say the sooner, the better. Love it.
0: Another plug to get vaccinated. <laughs> yep. I'm 100%. We are both very pro vaccination. So love to hear things like that. Um, especially when things are studied, because when there's data to support it, obviously it just makes it that much more reassuring for women to put themselves in that position and go ahead and get the vaccine, even when they're pregnant, because that was another thing that was, you know, definitely out there where women were afraid to get it when they were actually pregnant, because it might harm the fetus, but. We know that it doesn't. So that's great.
1: Absolutely. And I think, like, and I understand those sentiments. Like, in the beginning, everything was scary. We had no idea what COVID was. We had no idea what the vaccine was and all of that. But I think, like, longitudinally and like fact based and science and all of that, we can say it's safe and it's effective and I think helpful overall.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. So, this has been such an amazing and informative conversation so far. I honestly can't believe it's already been an hour of us chatting, but to me that just goes to show how important and vast this topic is. Okay, so let's stop here for today since it's already been an hour and pick it up next week. So next week on our season finale, we'll just continue this conversation and dive into what the process of IVF, egg and embryo freezing looks like. And, you know, what having anesthesia for the procedure entails, the costs for fertility preservation. The pros and cons of genetic testing and more. So thank you everyone for joining us and join us again next week as we continue our discussion with Dr. Blakemore. We would love to hear your thoughts. Visit our Instagram at the Female Pain Docs for more content. Send us an email at the femalepaindocs at gmail if you have any topics in particular you would like us to discuss. You can also visit our website at www.thefemalepaindocs.com. See you next time.